Well, good morning, everyone. Well done for making it here on the City to Surf Day, and uh, well done to anyone who's listening to this recorded later as well. Lots of people promised me they would catch up, so I thought I'd, I'll double-check to see whether they do, hey? Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do pray, soften our hearts to receive your word now. Uh, please take away any obstacle to not just hearing your word, but to being transformed by your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it seems to me that our culture today is obsessed with change, with progress. In the last 200 years or so of history, uh, change has happened so rapidly and so radically that the word revolution has been constantly used to describe it. Uh, The American Revolution, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Industrial Revolution... Uh, to which we can add the agrarian revolution, the commercial revolution, the communications revolution, the consumer revolution, the sexual revolution, the financial revolution, the digital revolution, the gender revolution, and the AI revolution, and possibly several others that have occurred just since I started talking. Dramatic and constant upheaval is the norm. It's the defining characteristic of our age. Uh, So much so that a man named Alvin Toffler uh, once wrote a great little book called Future Shock. Uh, And he argued that just as if you were to, say, pick someone up from suburban Perth and drop them in rural China or downtown Japan, uh, that they would experience a kind of a culture shock, uh, so too this accelerated pace of technological and cultural change, social change, would lead to a kind of future shock. Uh, that actually change would rob life of any permanence or stability and it would lead to the same kind of social paralysis and disconnection and disorientation as the world just radically changes around us. Uh, Toffler predicted that this would leave each generation with a radically different set of values. In other words, he predicted boomer versus millennial memes. Uh, He also predicted uh, that they would each blame each other for the different societal problems that they saw in the world around them. Uh, He predicted, too, that our our parents and our grandparents wouldn't be able to use their iPhones properly. And when did he predict all of this? In 1970. The pace of change has only increased since then. Now, a necessary part of this story is that one is either for or against the revolution. Uh, One is either for it and they're for progress or they're against it and they're therefore for the counter-revolution, a return to the status quo or even uh, back to the good old days. Uh, And each group races to define themselves as the oppressed minority so they can decry the abuses of power of those above them. And that leaves us Christians wondering, uh, where do we see ourselves in the mess of perpetual revolution by the perpetually revolting? And into this comes the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 6 that we just read. And in Luke 6, we see that Jesus is making the case for his revolution, making the case for his kingdom, which is, verse 20, the kingdom of God. And in the process, he gives us a glimpse of life, what it means to be a a, a true revolutionary, which is what I want to talk to us about today. But let me just quickly remind you of the context where we're up to in Luke chapter 6. Because the need for revolution was made very clear as early as the beginning of chapter 3. 
Uh, even just mentioning who was in power in the day was enough for Luke to remind us that change is needed. Uh, you know, the, the politically corrupt, the tyrannically cruel, the, the morally bankrupt were the rulers of this day. Uh, but the opening chapters of Luke have made it very clear that the pages of history do not belong to the powerful, but they belong to the God who determines history. Uh, history is about the fulfillment of God's promises. And so Jesus said in his very first sermon in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, where he quotes, quotes from Isaiah 61, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Jesus is making it clear that the Son of God does not occupy a side of history, he cannot be co-opted as being either for or against any of the various revolutions we increasingly experience. Instead, Jesus is making it clear that he perfects history. He fulfills it as the one who announces the good news and the time of the coming of the Lord's favour. Jesus is himself a revolution. But what has been surprising is how mixed the reactions to Jesus' revolution have been. The people in his hometown, even perhaps his own family, uh, they tried to kill him just at the thought of it. Uh, the crowds, they, they swarm around him like uh, shoppers on, on a Boxing Day sale. And the, the evil spirits seem to uh, cling to him like sparks to a lightning rod. The Pharisees are already staunch opponents of, of Jesus. They chase him through the fields, obsessing over food laws. Uh, they fume at him in synagogues as they dispute over uh, labor regulations on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, for his part, he responds with obscure stories about King David getting takeaway from the temple. He challenges his hearers to regard him as uh, the Messiah of Psalm 110, God's priestly king who rules the universe. And meanwhile, he hides out in true revolutionary fashion up on a mountaintop uh, with only his newly selected inner circle of 12 disciples whom he designates apostles because they will be the ones who spread his revolution. Even though, like many revolutionaries, we're told right at the end of chapter, right before our reading today, that betrayal would come from those closest to him. And here's where we take up our story. In Luke chapter 6, verse 17. Uh, Jesus comes down from the mountain to the level plain uh, to give perhaps his most famous sermon ever, uh, which it seems is a sermon that he regularly gave, at least in some form. Uh, this sermon on the plain in Luke 6, it's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, as we call it, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. And I take it that Jesus probably repeated this material on a regular occurrence and, and in different places as part of his itinerant ministry. And so Jesus makes the case for his revolution, the case for his kingdom. And he does so, you'll notice, with a series of contrasts in our reading today. I hope you saw that as we read it. And by doing so, Jesus is not just making the case for his kingdom. Jesus is making the case that his is the only kingdom. His is the only revolution. His is the true revolution and his followers are true revolutionaries. And that actually every other revolution in human history has merely been just a rearranging of the pieces on the board, a rearranging of who is rich and poor, 
who is hungry and who is satisfied, of who you're supposed to love, verse 32, and who you're supposed to judge, verse 37, who we ought to follow, verse 40, and who is, in fact, just a blind guide, verse 39. Jesus is arguing, I think, that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that only he brings something genuinely new. Only he is new wine in new wineskins. A true revolution. It teaches us what a true revolutionary is like. And you'll see there in the outline, that's what I want to talk about today. A true revolutionary will be rejected, verses 20 to 26. A true revolutionary loves their enemies, verses 27 to 38. And a true revolutionary stands firm. In verses 39 to 49. So please do uh, keep your Bibles open to Luke chapter 6 and to the outline there. But the first thing that we learn about the true revolutionary is that they will be rejected. They'll be rejected by people. Uh, you scan your eyes over verses 20 to 26 there again, would you? Because the lot of the true revolutionary, Jesus says, is poverty and hunger and weeping and abuse for their identity with the Son of Man. Uh, which is Jesus' way of speaking about himself. And the Lord Jesus here is using quite provocative language. He's borrowing languages from Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28, the languages of, of blessings and curses and woes. And what holds together all the various blessings and woes in this section is the relationship between the prophets of old and those God sent them to. Uh, it's simple, really. You're blessed when you suffer for Jesus, the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day, leap for joy, he says, because yours is the kingdom, verse 20. And at verse 23, great will be your reward in heaven. Because this is the way that your, the, their ancestors of old treated the prophets that God sent. A true revolutionary suffers for Jesus just like God's prophets suffered at the hands of rebellious Israel. Indeed, on the other hand, verse 26, beware if you're getting a good hearing. You know, a woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. You know, you know that you are on the side of Jesus' revolution when your audience treats you like Israel treated the Old Testament prophets. You know you're in good company. And you know that you're in danger if no one is being offended and no one is criticising you. Because although the true revolutionary may be hungry now in verse 21, they will be satisfied. And those who weep will last. They will laugh, sorry. On the other hand, in verse 24, those who are rich now, well, they've already received their comfort. They've already received their reward and so the well-fed now, they will go hungry. When Jesus' revolution is complete, there will be a dramatic reversal of fortunes. And it is looking forward to that future that gives the true revolutionary the power to live in the present, even as they are being rejected and going hungry. Now, at this point, it would be very easy to develop a martyr complex about that rejection. But Jesus will not let us do that. Because the second thing that we see about true revolutionaries is that they love their enemies in verse 27. And they even do good to those who hate them. Uh, far from 
gloating over our persecution in a tempest of self-righteousness, a true revolutionary actually and self-sacrificially loves those who reject them and prays for those who despise them. What an extraordinary thing to say. I was thinking about this this week. I, I couldn't kind of get out of my head. Imagine what Twitter would be like. I mean, sorry. Imagine what X would be like or whatever I'm supposed to call it now. Imagine what that would be like if, you know, that was the way we actually responded to our enemies, if that was the way we actually responded to those who, who disagreed with us, let alone what the rest of life would be like if we responded with such generosity with those with whom we disagree. But notice that the love of a true revolutionary is not merely an exchange, a a transaction. Revolutionary love expects nothing in return. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. So much of what we call love today is in fact merely reciprocity. I'll scratch my back if you scratch mine. It's not really love. It's simply an investment in people from whom one day we expect a return. Its ultimate object is not the good of other, but the good of self. It's, it's selfish love. And it's often elitist. We love only those whom uh, we deem as being worthy of love because of their worth to me. And if we do love someone who, who looks unworthy of our love, it's, it's often a show. It's minimalistic virtue signaling. It's love as a political act before an audience to show that I'm on the right or the left side of the latest revolution and therefore worthy of being loved in return with the same lukewarm contract. But not so with the extraordinary love of a follower of Jesus. Uh, Verse 35, you can't really say it better than him. But love your enemies. Do good to them. And lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And you will be children of the Most High. Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful. Just as your father is merciful. You see the golden rule should leave a mark in our flesh. The true revolutionary is renowned for sacrificial generosity. And costly mercy, so much so that it hurts. And they even, verse 37, they forgive rather than reject. Look at verse 37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. A true revolutionary always extends the hand of hope to those who harm them. And perhaps the greatest gift a revolutionary can give to those who despise and reject them is the gift of forgiveness. Because that, after all, is what God has done for us. Let me remind you of what Romans chapter chapter 5 verse 8 says. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that is, whilst we were still God's enemies, whilst we were still rejecting God, whilst we were still despising God, 
Christ died for us. That same undeserved love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ our Lord is now the same love that we are to show to those who are rejecting us. Just as God loved us when we were rejecting him, so too we love those who are rejecting us. In other words, we don't just treat others the way that we would have them treat us. We actually treat others the way that God has treated us. It is the loving kindness of God toward us that is the secret of the true revolutionary's love for others. And so finally then, the true revolutionary will also stand firm. And whether or not we do stand firm, Jesus says, depends upon the one that we are following. Uh, if we, uh, we all follow someone, Jesus is saying in, in verse 40, and we, we actually end up becoming like the one we follow. Uh, and so therefore, if we follow the, the blind guide in verse 39 then we will end up both falling, both failing. And we're often unqualified to lead each other because of our own failings. We're we're hypocrites, often seeking to remove the speck of dust from someone else's eye whilst failing to see the two-by-four in our own, in verses 41 to 42. But the point of all this becomes very clear in verses 47 to 49, as Jesus pleads with us to follow him, to follow the right person. Verse 47, as for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Uh, Now this uh, parable never fails to uh, amuse me now, now especially that I live in Perth, uh, because after all, nothing's built on rock here in Perth, everything's built on sand. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Without me, everything is built on sand. Without me, nothing has a foundation. Uh, Follow anyone or anything else and everything will collapse. But the true revolutionary will not fall. The true revolutionary will have a stability that only Jesus can provide. Because the true revolution uh, rests on a foundation that says... Uh, The the truth is not just an idea, but it is in fact a person. It is in fact the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so therefore amidst the the chaos of culture wars and identity politics, the true revolutionary has an unshakable strength that comes from following Jesus. They have an identity that is built on him, who he is and what he has done. And in particular, what he has taught us, his words. Our foundation is not the brittle self-edifice of self-determination or self-actualization. Instead, we have an identity on 
based on what God has graciously built for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not dependent on ourselves, but instead it rests upon him. And only in Jesus is there a firm foundation for standing against the storms of unceasing change that sweep over us with increasing regularity. I mean, even let me just give you an example of this, a simple example of this. Just imagine for a moment two different people, one a follower of Jesus and the other one not. And both of them are in the same situation in their job. If they tell the truth, they're going to get fired. They're going to lose their job. And well, for most people, what are they going to do? For those who don't follow Jesus, what are they going to have to do? And the answer is, well, they're going to have to lie. Because they can't live without that job. They can't live without that that house in Shenton Park. They can't live without their comforts. They can't live without success and the, the acceptance and the good opinion of others. They can't live without something, something that they can use to build their own meaning in life. In other words, they're slaves. They're slaves to, to this world. They're slaves to the now. They're slaves, therefore, to the revolutions of this world and to constant change. And they live with the daily struggle of having to make sure that they are on the, the correct side of whatever is the latest revolution. The thing that will protect them. They can't challenge the ideologies or the way that the wind is blowing. And you know, that's something that I've seen so many times in my life now. There's so many people I've met who have at some point in their life heard the revolutionary message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and perhaps even followed it for a time. But ultimately they reject it because of something that they wanted now a career they wanted now, or a relationship they wanted now, or a pleasure they wanted now. But the true revolutionary, the follower of Jesus, they can tell the truth. They can stand up to what is happening in our world today. They can have integrity and stand firm, even when it costs. Even when they lose that job or their relationship or that pleasure because... The true revolutionary is not controlled by riches or by comfort or by the opinion of others. The true revolutionary knows they will be rejected, even as they know that they must love those who are doing the rejecting. But in Jesus, they can stand firm. In Jesus, we can have a a center to our lives that is actually outside of ourselves and not dependent upon us but instead on the very words of Jesus. We can have something in our life to live for that is bigger than us, namely his kingdom and his glory. And we can stand firm even now, even while being rejected. But actually it's deeper than that, isn't it? Because remember, remember what Jesus said. Blessed are you if you hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you if you weep now, for you will laugh. The revolutions of this world, they will keep coming. They're not going to stop, not anytime soon. And we will keep in our world today rearranging who is rich and poor, who is hungry and who is satisfied, who to love and who to judge. 
But there is a storm coming. There is a torrent coming. There is a flood coming. And you can't listen to Jesus talk about these things and talk about the flood there in verses 47 to 49 and not be reminded of the flood of Noah's day. And the promise of the flood of God's judgment that Jesus warned us is coming and that he even died to rescue us from. And who will stand on that day? Where will solid ground be found when the torrent of God's wrath is poured out on humanity? Whose house, whose life indeed will be saved on that day? And you see, on that day when Jesus' revolutionary is finally complete, only those who follow him will stand. Only the one who has planted themselves on Jesus. Only the one who trusts that Jesus was the one sacrificed for our sins to, to bring us forgiveness. And that Jesus was risen from the dead to reign as a promise that one day his revolutionaries will also rise and reign with him. See, once again, right here at the very end, Jesus is not just saying that he's another revolution. He's not even just saying that he's another option amongst the multiplicity of options that we see in our world today. Once again, Jesus is saying he is the only revolution. His is the only kingdom and his words are the only way to stand. He is the only foundation strong enough to survive the coming flood. Everything else is shifting, unstable, temporary. But of course, it's easy to be sceptical about this, isn't it? Some of us perhaps still doubt in our heads, and if not our heads, then in our hearts. Is Jesus strong enough to be that foundation? Is what he says here actually true? Is judgment really coming? And so just come back very quickly. Come back to verses 18 and 19, to the very beginning of the passage. We're told that, that power was coming out from Jesus, and yet, how does Jesus use his power? To heal the sick with a gentle word or touch, to cure those plagued by unclean spirits. Now, Jesus faced down the greatest enemy that humanity has ever been known a few weeks ago simply by saying, That's not what the Bible says. He's kind when his own family reject him. He's patient with the overwhelming crowd that just wants more and more from him. His words are only ever sharp towards those who would seek God without him and even then only in the hope that they would repent. And you see, all these things, these are the signs of Jesus' revolution. The hints that the whole world will be like this when Jesus' revolution will be complete, without sickness, without evil spirits, without hate. And here is our evidence, even in this very chapter, that everything that Jesus says here is true. Jesus came to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead, and even to die on a cross. And right here, all of these things are happening. The hungry are being satisfied. Those who weep are rejoicing. Those who are poor, they are receiving the kingdom of God as they join Jesus in his revolution. 
and to the rich and powerful and satisfied, to those who persecute Jesus and his followers. Jesus is saying, you are about to lose it all. There will be no more comfort for you when the flood comes. You will be cosmically hungry. You will mourn and you will weep and it will not end. When the torrent strikes, your house will collapse and your destruction will become complete. And you see, it is the miracles of Jesus that are the handwriting on the wall that their days are numbered. As you'll notice again in verses 48 to 49, Jesus doesn't say if. Jesus doesn't say if the flood comes, if the torrent comes. Jesus says when. When it comes. When the flood, when the torrent, when the judgment comes, only those who listen to the words of Jesus will stand. This is important. See, Jesus, Jesus is not here to teach us about how to have a happy life. In fact, if I've understood this passage correctly, he's doing the exact opposite. But what he is teaching us to do is how to stand, how to last, and not just to last now, but for all eternity. And so I say to you, listen to him. Listen to him and you will be certain. You'll be sure that, yes, we will be rejected when we follow him. And yes, that we must love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. But perhaps most important of all, we will be able to be sure that because of Jesus, we can stand when the flood comes. For it's not that we are on the right or the wrong side of history. When we listen to Jesus, we are on Jesus' side of history. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your gracious love to us that you have shown us in Jesus. In him, Lord, we thank you for the rock-solid certainty that we can have because of his death and resurrection. Lord, we thank you for the certainty that we will be rejected just as he was. We thank you for the certainty that we can and, and must love just as he loved. But we also thank you for that wonderful certainty that because of him, we will stand. And not just stand now, Lord, but that we will stand with him for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.